my name is Calvin Jones and I'm a professor of economics at Cardiff Business School. Um, and my, my interests uh, historically have been regional economic modeling uh, impact assessments, which have, which have kind of expanded into uh, more environmental modeling. So there's a lot of carbon modeling um, more recently, but um, with that realized that the numbers don't really matter. Something more you know, structural had to change um, to, to make any kind of real change in, in development paths. Um, and in 2010, 9, 10, I wrote a, a report called Wales in the Energy Crunch, which looked at uh, our particular region's vulnerabilities to increased energy costs, because Wales is the, the, the kind of most energy intense region of the UK at the same time as being the poorest. Um, and since then, I've just tried to develop my research uh, towards the whole idea of energy transition and, and what it means for economies. So you wrote in your article that growth is not only undesirable, but in the medium term impossible. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, that's not my um, uh, my own kind of uh, idea. I mean, there's a fantastic blog called Do The Math, uh, which is written by a physicist uh, in the States, which, yeah, I mean, just, just points out that as long as growth includes uh, energy transformations, that uh, within a reasonably short period of, of a couple of hundred years, you simply won't be able to radiate the excess heat into space, let alone, you know, worry about where the materials are coming from or the, the energy sources are coming from for this group. Um, so there's something peculiarly odd about chasing economic growth on a finite planet with no end in sight. And of course, you know, when I teach my students, for example, in my third year course, you know, I do point out that the original economic thinkers, Adam Smith, J.S. Mill, had, even Keynes, had some idea of economic growth as a means to an end, uh, that at some point we would have, quote-unquote, enough and be able to uh, move to some steady-state economy where, you know, where our needs were provided for. I think we've lost that in the interim, um, and that's just really what I'm trying to get back to, really, is trying to think of how we can reform economics to, to have some idea of where the end point is. It seems to be at the moment with the current sort of uh, governmental obsession with getting back to growth at all costs um, that questioning growth is uh, is met with derision and uh, looking the other way very often in public anyway, although my experience is increasingly that when you actually talk to people, you know, I, I was at an event recently where <clears throat> that I chaired and it was all uh, chief executive officers of, of district and county councils from across the southwest of England. Um, at the beginning they were asked uh, what, where did they think the economy was going over the next 5, 10, 20 years? Did they think we were going to be getting back to growth? Three quarters of them said, not going to happen. And again and again my experience is when I meet people in local government, uh, MPs even, when you get them away from what they're supposed to be saying publicly, uh, often the message is, it's just not going to happen, I don't believe it. And uh, and so I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of, if that's the case, as you were arguing in your in your paper, um, when, where does the Emperor's New Clothes moment come? How do we tackle that uh, denial, this kind of obsession that we have to get back to growth and it will happen even if it kills us. Well, I mean, I think this is, this is really, really complicated and, I, and it's difficult to argue um, this through in, in, a, in a blog uh, of the nature of the one I wrote. But um, I mean, the issue is that when we think about economics, you know, economics is purely a climate change 
it's it's purely a a fossil fuel age uh, science, if you like. And you think about Adam Smith, born in 1723, uh, you know, 20 years after Newcomen's steam engine started, um, you know, emptying uh, coal mines of water. So all the economic thought that we've had, um, formerly in the West, at least not not through the Arabs, has been on the basis of a growing economy with investable opportunities based on very, very cheap fossil fuels. So I think we start from a place where the theoretical basis of how we understand the economy um, is predicated towards, you know, it's got a growth bias in it. And if you also layer on top of that, the whole idea of joint stock companies, uh, which you know, have to have returns uh, that are not linked to, you know, the owner's labor or, you know, the investor's labor. So you have to have an increased resource base to kind of, um, you know, service those claims, if you like. So we've got an economic system which we've only ever seen work under growth um, and which we have told, uh, certainly for the last 30 years in the UK, we've we've told our public servants is, you know, there is no alternative. I mean, you know, that that this is the way in which you get increased efficiency, uh, the way in which you get uh, hopefully increased tax resources to pay for all the things you'd like to pay for. So I think I think we come from a place where you know, there's, there's genuinely, yes, huge disquiet about the way in which the world has gone, particularly post-2007. But at the same time, you know, what I always say is capitalism is such a strong incumbent uh, that you need an equally strong challenger. And what we don't have in any sort of post-growth or A-growth or D-growth scenarios is a strong, coherent plan, paradigm, structure for what we think post-growth looks like. And that's because it's incredibly difficult. Um, and so it's not a case of talk, you know, talking to or explaining to, to public servants or, or the man on the street, the lady on the street, um, that, that there is an alternative and this is what it is. If you look at what the alternatives are, there's of course a huge range. And then when you look at what capitalism is, which is very understandable, it's devil take the most largely, and if you're lucky with a little bit of money left over, you know, as a safety net, um, I think people are, are really concerned about the, uh, you know, the undefined nature of the alternatives to what they're familiar with. And, and I think until we get that nailed down, um, and obviously there are various ways in which that's being further, both in transition town networks, in, in the French decroissance movement and various other steady state economy um, developments. But until we've got that coherent vision of how places work under degrowth or a growth scenario, it will be difficult to make that change. And what's your take on what a post-growth world would look like, a post-growth economy? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I have one. I mean, I think I think certainly what what I do think is when I look at uh, the way in which debates go is that we, we we fall into a couple of traps. I think. I mean, the first one is. I mean, certainly, I have a lot of time for the transition network and and, and the either transition towns. Um, but but the question I always ask myself uh, is, who's got the guns? For example. You know, so so when you think about localized, purely localized economies, uh, you know, whether they're city, state, or town economies, uh, as as you know, guys like yourselves are trying to forward, what I wonder then is is where does the vision come from for for the overarching security apparatus, for the overarching transport infrastructure that you may need to get between these towns? You know, who is thinking about what sort of whether it's a nation state or a smaller uh, organization, spatially, that actually. Uh, enables that into place uh, kind of uh, trade or, or the things that we will need to make these places good places. Look, I mean, I always say to people in um, in conferences, you know, at the moment, you know, very, very well, I many people come up and say, yes, the only way forward is transition towns. And I say, that's very true. But if 
if Llandaila was uh, spending the next 20 years uh, learning to grow cabbages, this, the rational thing for Llandaila to do is learning to be bandits. And, you know, a day before the cabbages are harvested. And, and I think, unfortunately, because... Because what's happening with our current hugely centralised, uh, hugely hierarchical political systems is so obviously wrong, the natural tendency is to, to want to throw that away and come up with something very localised. Um, but of course, it's been a long, long time since we've had anything properly localised in terms of human organisation in, in Europe, at least. Um, and, I, and I can't see how, you know, I, the, the, as, as I always say, you know, in, in the transition town uh, kind of framework, who pays the brain surgeons or do we simply not have brain surgery and if you want brain surgeons how do we tax individual towns you know because you're obviously going to have a brain, brain surgeon per town to provide those specialized services and how do we then allocate them to, to, to those individual towns so i think that, that the kind of local economy agenda fills that gap in terms of what happens in localities um, and then I think that the, the requirement for people, maybe like people like me and, and others, is to think about what sort of framework, a decentralised framework, a, a framework allows autonomy and flexibility for those places. And, you know, what, what uh, John Michael Creek calls dissensus, not consensus. So lots of different places doing very different things, not all following the same path. Um, what sort of framework can allow that? And yes, will need to be sustained. There'll be some measure of bureaucracy, some measure of organisation from the centre, which enables the roads between towns to get patched, for example. Um, but but that, I think that system is not yet. I, I've not seen a, that a kind of fully fleshed out really. And until that happens, I think it's going to be very difficult to actually show the emperor has no clothes. And uh, do you think that the the push for um, uh, for a post-growth model or from for, for that thinking and making it happen in practice, do you think that's inevitably going to be led from the bottom up because the top down just can't go there? And by the time it does go there, it's going to be really pretty dire. Or do you think there is some flicker of hope? Particularly, I'm thinking in the Welsh context, I seem to get a sense in your piece that there seems to be something in the in in Wales that's maybe more open to this than certainly here in the UK, is there any chance, do you think, of a kind of a top-down-led process of, of exploring what life beyond growth is? And do you think that the the push for, um, uh, for a post-growth model or from, for, for that thinking and making it happen in practice, do you think that's inevitably going to be led from the bottom up because the top down just can't go there and by the time it does go there it's going to be really pretty dire or do you think there is some flicker of hope particularly I'm thinking in the Welsh context I seem to get a sense in your piece that there seems to be something in the in in Wales that's maybe more open to this than certainly here in the UK is there any chance do you think of a kind of a top-down led process of, of exploring what life beyond growth is I, I think Possibly yes. I mean, I mean, I would not overstate my optimism. I think that the Wales is is in a similarly poor position in terms of the quality of the economic debate we have uh, and and more widely civic debate. But I think what we do have maybe in Wales is there still is something around the importance of community and something around um, a desire to retain and protect that, which could, which could actually lead to a, a, a genuine debate about what growth is for. I mean, I mean, certainly the, the sorts of uh, organisations and, 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 and debates I'm involved in tend to be focused, yes, quite a lot on the ecological arguments, but also on 
on regeneration arguments and, and how can we regenerate places and I might you know and, and I you know again I think that you can put all the money in the world into a poor place uh, whether that's um, you know through European funding or communities first or anything else um, but if you have a massive uh, supermarket at the end of the road and various other uh, you know um, in multinationals very expert at getting money out of people and places um it's it's a it's a, it's a worthless task you know so there's something about you know if you look at new economics foundations work around you know plugging the holes in leaky buckets in terms of local spending and so on i think a debate that starts there which is about how we, we can we can foster prosperity if you like in 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 places does maybe lead you then to thinking about different forms of organization so for example not-for-profit organizations where they're social enterprises kinds you know uh, cooperatives and so on mutuals um that leads you to debate down that path i think from that direction we might get somewhere i think if we start from a theoretical perspective of growth is broken uh, at, a, at a central or even regional government level at the you know welsh government level i don't think we get very far because um there, there is genuine terror i think within uh, within the cabinet uh, when the thing beyond apparently are you wrote one of my favourite sentences, which I've put all over the place in that article. You said, the cognitive dissonance we feel as GDP figures rise and we feel ever more tired, stressed and scared is real and must be challenged. Can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, that just comes back to, if you like, my, you know, the link between work and welfare um, or, and, and a sense of well-being has been, you know, more and more dissolved over time. I mean, I think back to when I was growing up, um, and the obviously in the South Wales Valley, the dominant form of employment was mining, and obviously many miners and many of my my, my friends were miners, and it was a horrible, dirty, um, difficult, incredibly dangerous job, but one which had a huge amount of social kudos, uh, and one where work really meant something, uh, and one where you know uh, you were valued within a community. Now I think what we have is a vast majority of people, luckily I'm not one of them, um, who go to work purely because they know they must um, and they can see no way out of that. And, and further than that, they know that they must um, look forward to a life of nothing but work until they reach some notional retirement period, which seems to be getting further and further away. And I think that, you know, the, the fact that you spend half or more of your waking life doing something that you know is pointless, and, and that, you know, and this comes about the art, my point in the piece about genuinely welfare adding work you know if you um if you're doing jobs which seem to be benefiting no one apart from the the, the owner of the business you're working for um then it's benefits uh, of what you're doing um then i think you know we we have to think about what it is that we we you know what we call work uh, and think about what it is that we want to do with our time um, and think about how we can bring those two things together and at the same time you know I mean I, I, I can bore for whales on measurement issues but then because we have a default, me default measurement uh, which is GDP which measures only the monetized value of, of activity um, it's very difficult then to, to have conversations about um, about the value of work within a system where we, we simply can't value it in any holistic sense um, what would you say to, 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 to somebody who says, well, he's, what does he mean when nearing the end of the age of the end of growth, all my stocks and shares seem to be doing okay, my, the value of my house is staying relatively steady? You know, how, how 
does the concept that we're nearing the end of growth tally with people's everyday experience? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, the, I mean, the first thing is that, that it, it's simply not true um, that we have uh, stock markets which are doing relatively well. I mean, if, I, I, I think back to taking my money out of the stock market in 2002, the little money I had, uh, when it was 6,000, and we're, what, 6,003 now? Uh, so, you know, 12 years worth of, of returns, which are not particularly impressive, and I suspect going forward are going to get worse. Um, you know, uh, again, in my piece for, for the average kind of working Joe, if you like, uh, in American data, um, the high point was the early 70s in terms of disposable income uh, and what you could do with it. Um, so the perception we're getting richer actually is not necessarily borne out by, by the facts. Yes, we're, you know, we're certainly living longer. We have more material things. Um, but in terms of, you know, um, levels of welfare and so on, we're not actually getting that much better off. Now, of course, there's not there, there's, um, there's an extent to which we are continually enabling our level of material prosperity based on, uh, you know, I would look at the kind of exploitation of other parts of the world. Um, and my argument there would be that that is, in fact, coming to an end, irrespective of what you think about uh, economic growth and the ability to continue growing. As soon as your average Chinese family gets to a, a stage where they can afford to buy their own car, refrigerator, computer, um, exports from China will stop. And, and I suspect domestic consumption will take off, for better or worse, ecologically speaking. And we will find the goods that we want to import then extremely expensive. Uh, and at that point, irrespective of whether growth globally is continuing or not, I suspect that the West is going to find itself uh, a lot worse off in material terms. So, yeah, I mean, this is not going to happen tomorrow, maybe, but I certainly think you know, when I think about my children, who are six and one, uh, I wouldn't expect them to be growing, growing up and becoming adults in a world anything like the one that I did. I don't know if you saw the economic blueprint that we did in Totnes recently. I mean, what we were trying to do with that was, I suppose, to set out that what people are looking for an economy to do is to create jobs, <clears throat> to create economic resilience, to create well-being. And it feels like a post-growth approach is only really going to gain any traction if it can show that it can do that better than the existing model. Now, do you think that um, do you think that we're nearing the point in terms of an evidence base where we can show that that could be the case? Um, I'm not sure we are, and um, and and the reason for this is that the the, the material prosperity um, that we are intimately comfortable with and expect day to day um, is is so linked to our growth model that we have to take people on a very, very long journey um, in, to, to us think about what they really want. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, I can imagine sitting down with, with, with a group of people and telling how, how the world is going to be, um, you know, much nicer and they'll be doing useful work and the world will be more spread out and they'll be happier. And by the way, of course, there'll be no foreign holidays in this new brave world. Um, and people will say, hold on, <laughs> what do you mean no foreign holidays? Um, and similarly, there'll be no iPods in this world, you know, or iPads in this world, um, because we, we have to redefine what we think of as welfare at a fundamental level. I suspect, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I really hope I'm wrong on this, um, but, you know, if, if you take away fossil fuel kind of inputs to our to our our level of welfare, I suspect that the very notion of, of Retirement may be something that we we look back fondly on because you know again retirement is 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 an invention of the fossil fuel age. Nobody stopped working in 1600 or 1500 or, or 1 AD unless they were a you know a, a rich landowner, um, and 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 you know 
most people have worked, albeit within a household context, um, until they die. Now, that work might be very pleasant, maybe look after the kids, might be helping sew clothes, cook, you know, within a kind of reborn household economy. And I think that's certainly what I would look to in terms of a positive vision, that actually, if we go back to some idea of an extended household with different members of that household providing for different requirements, that is a positive vision um, that I would try and sell rather than effectively what we have now, but not growing. The, I think the notion of a steady state economy providing the same sorts of benefits that we have now is a very difficult one because we because once you take away the incre- ever-increasing material base, you take away the incentives for companies as they're currently constituted to um, invest and innovate and so on, and it's very hard to see what you put in its place to enable uh, you know, this, this, this kind of level of material prosperity, uh, which, which doesn't then end up re-raping the world again, if you like. Um, have you, Molly Scott Cato recently wrote a book all about the, the concept of bioregions, that American bioregional concept of the bioregion becoming the kind of organising and political uh, framework for stuff. Have you had, have you had, does that feature much in your work? I mean, I, I have. Uh, it's it, it, not not personally. Um, I mean, I, I, I've I've come across quite a lot because we have um, our planning school is quite into well the opposing notions of bioregions and ecoregions. And I'm not an expert in this, but I understand that a, um, a bioregion actually um, is more to do with. Um, how can I say this large scale bioagricultural kind of stuff? And an eco region might be what Molly would understand by a, you know, American bioregion. So I'm not sure it's a very clear concept, certainly not for me anyway. Um, I mean, I think that the, the idea of, of, of functional regions or functional spaces certainly appeals. I mean, that's um, that's something which I think there is, there is value in thinking about what scale human organization should happen at. You know, what is the appropriate scale? I think the problem is that. that we don't want to get, in, well, I wouldn't want to get in a situation where I had any idea that there should be a, a best, uh, a, a kind of best practice or best scale. Because what, what I do worry about is that there's um, there's any way in which, um, you know, we, we, sh- we should think there's a, there's an ideal that we should aspire to, that, that you know, in, in the old days or in a perfect world, regions would be this size and this is the sorts of things we should provide from within that region. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fairly kind of, uh, kind of, um, scientific guy and I just look at humans as you know a species which is way over exploited its, its ecological niche and whatever happens now um, will be a kind of messy crawling towards something which sort of works so I think that any um, and any the, the, the attempt to put structure on this um, and call it anything call it bioregions or, or, or to try to carry on with a nation state as is or go to a kind of you know a transition town localized system I think probably in practice, what we lend is is a lot of kind of messy, odd stuff happening across the world, and some places will look rather transition towny and, and will be very localised, and there'll be maybe a very low level of, of higher organisations. Some maybe maybe very regional. Maybe there's some regions do make sense in a functional way uh, and, and can provide their citizens um, mostly from within that actual geographical space. And then I think other places will be you know um, will may, may end up with some sort of eco-fascist approach where you just have a very centralised approach to um, the doling out of what resources are left, uh, and, and we continue with a, with a strong hierarchy um, albeit with some sort of I mean I'd say the original piece was about my worry that we what we get is um, is capitalism 
V2 uh, run by renewables, you know, covering the world to, to somehow try and um, uh, substitute for the fossil fuels we've had for the last 200 years. I think that might well happen in some places. Um, but I don't think that there will be a kind of one size all fit, you know, one size fits all solution to this. Um, although everything, I mean, you know, everything should be examined as far as we can because the more mud we throw at a wall, hopefully the more will stick. I suppose that my last question would be as somebody who is a, an economics academic and somebody who is within the kind of that world how how what's the experience of being someone in that world who explicitly questions assumptions around growth is it kind of accepted or are you are you somewhat sort of out on a fringe or you know what how is that um well, most of my colleagues think i'm absolutely barking mad uh, and it's and it's funny how I, mean, I gave I gave a talk about, about two months ago to, to, to my, my economic section in the school, um, uh, which was about you know the my um, my, my my argument was that the, the lack of easy and cheap fossil fuels would lead to the end of growth that we couldn't have an increasingly um, sized economy uh, globally uh, with one hundred dollar shale. Uh, you know, shale oil or uh, tar sands, as opposed to ten dollars Saudi oil, um, and it's amazing how the criticisms of that um, from the from the rest of my, you know, the rest of the profs and the various other members of staff, were simply um, purely something else will come along. You know, I mean, I mean, I I made some arguments and they said, but well, I guess at a certain price, something better will come along, um, because because the economics profession. Um, is used to substitutability in things. You know, if, if something is really you know, whale, if if we, as in the past, you know, uh, we we basically slaughter all the whales, we could render their their fat in Pembrokeshire and take that to London to light light the streets of London. And when we run out of whales and whale fat became more expensive, we moved on to you know town gas and then eventually um, petroleum type products uh, to to light our towns and gas. And you know, and and and, and the economics profession simply thinks that under the price mechanism. Things will um, things will move towards you know a kind of um, ever more efficient uh, and ever lower cost uh, kind of uh, equilibrium. And I think you know the funny thing there was one guy I was talking to who was a PhD student after this talk who who was doing a lot of work on network economics. And he he well I said a chime with him because uh, he, he and I were talking then about the, the late Bronze Age collapse when we moved from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Um, and iron is actually a far worse material than is bronze. Uh, you know, it's it's heavier. It's 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 not half as good as as, as bronze that most of the um, implementations it was put to. But the Mediterranean societies had to move to iron because following some catastrophe, um, you know, the, the trade routes that brought the tin and, and copper from the from the edges of Europe collapsed. So you didn't have the tin and copper from the UK and Spain to make the bronze. Um, and and at that time. Um, the move from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age was a move from a better to worse technology, and effectively the cities of the, around the Mediterranean emptied for 500 years. Yeah, the, the Troy disappeared. Uh, most of the Greek cities, most of the Greeks went back to the caves, effectively. Uh, you know, and 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 you know the archaeological record shows a huge uh, diminution of population around around the Mediterranean at that time. You know, following whether it was an earthquake or a tsunami or whatever it was. And so I think, you know, we are faced with that level of, of, of structural change. And economics simply cannot deal with it. So economics is, is a is a child of, of the of the oil age, a child of, of, of at least the um, hydrocarbon age. And it's very difficult to get the profession to accept that, that 
price does not do what you want to do in this situation, that you cannot ever, you know, there is no substitutability, I would argue, between oil and renewables for many applications. You know, by the time you've, you've, you've built the wind farm up at sea, you've got that electricity back on the shore and taking it away you want to, you know, to, to put into a battery. The losses involved in that compared to burning oil in an ICE are so huge that you can't do the same sorts of things with it. The costs really don't allow it. Um, but that's a conversation which, which is met with blank incredibility amongst most of my professionals unfortunately well I think um, as I say it's in, in, in the same way as all this none of it is something to be disagreed with but what I'm interested in is how this works um, but you know what, what I what I um, what I always think to myself is how how, how will this work in Guernos and Guernos is a very poor um social housing estate uh, about 20 miles north of Cardiff um, where there is you know the only land they've got has got a huge open cast coal mine on it um, there's no social capital there's no um, financial capital and my interest is in what what sorts of approaches are going to be attractive to places which are um, which are very very challenged you know I think that, I think there's a there, there, there's there's a reason why the transition town network and this interesting thought has emerged in places like the southwest of England, uh, west of Wales, you know, um, various other places in in the US. I guess parts of the US have, have, have thought the same things, because, you know, um, you have the space to do it because there are no other pressures to do it. So what I'm interested really is is what is the what is the version of that um, for the top. You know, and, and that's I think where I'm struggling to, to think about how you you engage, where you have a population who are at the moment very disengaged because they've been on the edges of, of of the economic system for so long. They don't believe that anybody has any has their best interests at heart. You know, and I think that's what I'm interested in really. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough challenge.